0: The end of that song said, in all I do I honor you, I, I don't know about you, but I fall short of that statement often, and um, I want to honor the Lord in all I do, but I often fail, and I thank God for Good Friday, because apart from that, I would have no hope. Uh, so in just a moment, we're going to consider the good in Good Friday from Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through the first half of, of 25. So if you have your copy of God's Word, would you just go ahead and, and join me in making your way there to, to Romans chapter 3. It's in the New Testament. If you need to, to use the table of contents, there's no, there's no shame in that. Um, we'll be on page 1133 in, in my Bible. That may not help you very much. But as we prepare to partake in the Lord's Supper not long from now, I just want us to reflect on the good in Good Friday. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find it difficult to think of Good Friday as good. On Good Friday, the sinless Son of God, the only and eternally begotten Son of the Father, the Creator of all things and the desire of nations and the treasure of heaven, God's long-awaited and promised King from Israel who had come to bring blessing to people from all nations, died. He didn't just die, right? He died the, the most excruciating death imaginable. Death by crucifixion after being scourged and mocked and ridiculed. For hours upon the cross, we we have heard from historians that he would have pulled himself up upon the spikes in order to draw each breath until, as we've already heard tonight, he willingly yielded up or gave up his spirit, and he died. Death by crucifixion is so horrific that the Roman historian and philosopher Cicero, about a hundred years before Jesus uh, was crucified, said this about crucifixion. He said, what am I to say if a Roman citizen be killed on a cross? A nefarious action such as that, is incapable of description by any word. It's indescribable that a Roman citizen be crucified. And yet, it was that death that Jesus died. Death by crucifixion. The most dreaded and unspeakable death known in the ancient world. A death reserved only for criminals and slaves. It was that death that Jesus, the innocent, sinless Son of God, died. And yet, we've gathered this evening to declare, this is good. Are are we crazy? Why would we say this? Let's hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Paul writes this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we, we pray and ask simply that you would help us to appreciate the good in Good Friday. And that in so doing, that you would amplify our gratitude for our Savior. And that you would increase our resolve to live for Him in all that we do. We pray it in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. I want to show you two things tonight before we share in the Lord's Supper from this text. And the first is this. It's a truth that you've heard probably many times in church. And it's, it's right there in the text of Scripture in verse 21 through 23. Everyone has sinned and sinners continually fail to reach the glory of the perfectly righteous God. Everyone's sinned and sinners perpetually and continually and ongoingly fail to attain to the glory of a perfectly righteous God. Uh, Before we get to chapter 3 of Romans, Paul writes a couple of chapters earlier, and in chapters 1 and 2, he's been driving toward the point that he makes at the end of verse 22 of the third chapter. He's been building his case to make this point, there's no distinction. No distinction. No distinction in what? No difference in what? Look at verse 23. No distinction in that all have sinned. It's not just that they've committed sins. It's that they've entered into a state of sinfulness. They are sinners. They are defined by their sin. It's not like sin and them are separate, but sin has overtaken them. They've, They've sinned. They've been consumed by it. And therefore, they constantly fall short of the glory of God. And we know because Paul begins by talking about the revelation of God's righteousness, that the glory of God here is connected with His righteousness in some way. And and Paul's point is this, that sin, everything we say and do and think that displeases God, separates us from the only true, wise, and holy God. The reason we're separated from His glory is because He is holy and we are are not. Our our sin keeps us, therefore, from being able to, to know and enjoy God in the glory of His infinite perfections. That's Paul's point, and it is our great problem. As we learn in verse 21, the Old Testament shows us that God is righteous. The Old Testament shows us that 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 he is holy and there's a standard, that he's perfect and sinless, that he's entirely and always good. And yet Paul tells us that the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, was never the way to overcome our sinfulness. It only showed us that we were sinful and it showed us that God is righteous the Old Testament shows us that the righteousness that we need to know and enjoy God is nothing less than the righteousness that is God's alone. It's not a righteousness that we can produce by what we do. It's not a righteousness that we can purchase because it belongs to God and it's not for sale. And yet, the testimony of Scripture is that for us to attain to the glory of God and know God in His glory, we must have the righteousness of God. It's a great problem for all humanity. How, how can we encounter the glorious God we were made to know and enjoy and love and bless and serve if we don't have His righteousness and that's what we must have in order to know Him? It, it's like, did any of y'all go to school? Some of y'all went to school, that's good. Um, it, it's like prerequisites, right? Right? Before you take Algebra 2, you got to take Algebra 1 and you got to pass it. And when it comes to knowing God and being accepted in the presence of God, sinners have a big problem because the prerequisite for enjoying God is nothing less than the righteousness of God. Where are we going to get that? This means that Jews and Gentiles alike, all people are in equal difficulty and danger before the God of glory who is perfectly holy. I want to make sure you understand that tonight. It does not matter if you've gone to church your whole life. When you stand before God in the day of judgment, that's not going to be enough. It doesn't matter if you earn straight A's. It doesn't matter if you're a great athlete. It doesn't matter if you're the best person at your job. It doesn't matter if, compared to your neighbor and your colleague and most of the people that you know, you are a pretty good person. None of those things equals the righteousness of God. None of those things can undo our great problem. We are sinners and sinners are incapable of fixing their sin problem or reaching the God they've sinned against, verse 23 says, we fall short. And the the verb tense there means we keep on falling short. There's no end of the falling shortness of those who have sinned. I promise I'm getting to the good in Good Friday. I'm just not there yet. Beloved, sin's effects are far worse than we'd like to imagine. Far, far worse than we'd like to imagine. We, we treat it so trivially, but in Genesis 4-7, the Lord tells Cain, sin's desire is for you. Sin, it's like personified, like it wants to overtake you. Sin infects the totality of our being. And for us to appreciate the goodness of Good Friday, we first have to grapple with the awfulness of our, our sin. We can't overlook the totality with which sin infects and corrupts and twists and mars and stains our lives. How total, how, how radically infected we are with sin. In his book, The Cross and Salvation, there's an author by the name of Bruce Demarest. He says this, Scripture teaches that Adam's sin affected not only himself, but all of his offspring. Jesus affirms this when he said, flesh gives birth to flesh. Flesh, in this case, doesn't mean flesh and bone, but the spiritual reality of all fallen sinners in which we have a fundamental aversion and hostility toward God and his holiness. Before the fall, church, it was possible for Adam and Eve Not to sin and therefore not die. But after the fall, after they chose sin and rebelled against God, it became impossible for all of their offspring to not sin and therefore not die. We're born in death. We're headed to death. We're rebels against God. We became spiritually dead by default. In Ephesians 2.1, Paul says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins. This means that left to ourselves, we all refuse to know and love and serve our Creator. Theologians call this this default setting of fallen humanity total or radical depravity. Though humans are generally not as bad as they possibly could be, the witness of Scripture is that we are all corrupted by sin in every aspect of our being well, that doesn't sound too good. Where's the good and good Friday? I'm getting there. But first, let's consider sin's impact on the sinner. Intellectually, Scripture teaches us that we are closed to spiritual truth. In Ephesians 4.18, Paul says, we are darkened in our understanding and alienated from the life of God. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, and it's worse than that. He thinks the things of the Spirit of God are foolish or folly. Sin affects our minds. Volitionally, sin affects our desires and our decisions, leading us to consistently refuse God and His purposes. In Romans 6.20, Paul describes those who don't belong to Jesus as slaves to sin, owned by sin. Peter in 2 Peter 2.19 uses the same language. We are slaves to corruption. And lest we think Jesus had a different idea, Jesus in in John 8.34 says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Both the minds and the wills of unsaved sinners are set against God. But it gets worse. We don't just Think and choose contrary to God, but Demarest writes this emotionally: sinners' affections, what they feel on the inside, are disordered by their fallen nature, causing them to delight in evil. It's not just we thought wrong and chose wrong; we didn't even feel right. We felt wrongly about wrong stuff. We see this in places like Titus three three, where Paul says we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We had what, what lit our fire, what ignited us on the inside was, was wrong. In Ephesians 2, 3, Paul says we once lived in the passions of our flesh. Sin also impacts us morally. Sin clouds our view of right and wrong. In Titus chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says both the minds and the consciences of the lost are corrupted. Sin so messes us up that we even get it wrong about right and wrong. And if you don't believe me, just go home and turn on the news and listen to someone defending the position that they aren't what God made them to be or any other number of crazy theories that are out there. Sin impacts us morally, and not surprisingly, by affecting our view of what is right and wrong, it also affects our actions and leads us into unrighteous behavior, violence, cruelty misuse of intimacy abuse of the weak Peter says sinners live in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry first Peter 4 3 and some of you are like well I didn't do any of those things well just in case you thought it was just the bad the big the big ones listen to what Paul says just a few verses earlier in Romans three ten and 11 he says no one is righteous no not one No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. I'm almost done with the bad stuff. But there's one more. Sin doesn't just affect us intellectually and volitionally and morally and behaviorally and um, in in our affections. It also impacts us relationally as idolaters, we rebel against God. Everyone worships something, and if we're not worshiping the God of glory, we're worshiping something else. We're worshiping something less than God, something that is an idol, and these lesser things leave us alienated from knowing God and His presence. In Colossians 121, Paul writes, we were alienated and hostile in mind toward God. In Isaiah 59, 2, the prophet declares, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Fallen sinners are at war with the God they were made to know and enjoy and love. Sin has wrecked us in every conceivable way. We need to understand the bitter ugliness of our sin, church, and how thoroughly it dominates our lives so that we can truly comprehend how good Good Friday is. You see, left to ourselves, we would be eternally separated from the favorable presence of God, and we wouldn't even care because sin corrupts and infects the totality of our lives. Without Jesus, we are intellectually, volitionally, morally, behaviorally, relationally, and irreparably corrupted by sin forever disqualified from knowing God and enjoying Him with no hope of changing our condition. But I do have some good news. I promise. And it's found in verses 24 and 25. And it leads us to our second point. Sinners can be declared right with God by His grace which is a gift made possible through what Jesus accomplished on the cross. You can be right with God because of what Jesus did on Good Friday. In verse 24, the the text takes a remarkable turn. While all have sinned, it is also true that all, in this case meaning all who believe in Jesus Christ, referring back to verse 22, all who believe in Christ are justified by God's grace as a gift. Justified is a, it's a legal term. It means to be declared just or innocent or right before the one who's been offended. The promise in verse 24 is that everyone who knows the truth about Jesus and agrees with the truth about Jesus and commits their lives to Jesus and His agenda are ongoingly declared right with God by God. It's not that believers in Jesus will one day be declared right with God. It is that through faith right now, God says we're on good terms. You can know me. You can love me. You can enjoy me. You can encounter me in glory. It's not that Yes, you believe now and then if you give enough or improve enough or do enough that one day you might encounter me. It's not that. That's not the message of Romans 3. The message of Romans 3 is that those who believe in who Jesus is and what he did on the cross, in that moment they have access to the God of glory because they are declared to have the righteousness of God, not by what they did but because of who Christ is. That's good news. Those who trust in King Jesus continually have, as God's gracious gift, the righteousness of God. That's mind-blowing. Like, do you know how my week went? Do you know the thoughts that I had? Do you know the places that I went? And yet God says, for those who are in Christ, they have the righteousness of God. When we belong to Jesus, God no longer sees us as sinners, but as sons and daughters in whom he takes delight and he welcomes us to draw near to him with confidence, Hebrews chapter 10. And, and here's what I know. There are some here this evening who still don't have this confidence. You still don't have this confidence because you're still looking at yourself to be justified. You're still trying to earn or deserve God's favor. God, I I know I could be good enough. If I could just do one more thing, then you'll accept me. You're, You're looking at yourself, and you're thinking God could never accept you because of all you've done wrong, or you're looking at yourself and saying, I can't be that bad, so if I could just do a little bit more, then God could accept me, and either one of those statements is just the opposite side of the coin of pride. Some of you say, I've been so bad, God can't save me. You don't think God's powerful enough. You really don't appreciate the depth of the sacrifice Christ made for you on the cross, the infinite Son of God, bearing every ounce of the wrath of God in your place, substituting His life for you. You you don't yet see how amazing Jesus is. And that's a version of pride. I've been too bad for God to save me. And then there's another version of pride that says, I'm not bad enough that I need saving. In either case, you're looking at yourself and you're not looking at Jesus. I love what Lloyd-Jones says here, the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself. Instead, he he looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and he rests in that alone. Wretched sinners Wretched sinners who look to Jesus and rest their lives on him are justified. They're they're declared right with God by God himself. But for this to happen, God had to do more than just like wave a magic wand and say, okay, you're forgiven. How is it that we can have this forgiveness? We have to be placed in Christ. Jesus had to do something on our behalf. It requires an unalterable change in our status before God. And we just celebrated in baptism the truth that the Holy Spirit, for those who believe in Christ, He will change our heart. And in changing our heart, He somehow supernaturally does a miracle whereby He unites us with Jesus and God credits the perfect, holy, sinless, divine righteousness of Jesus to our account so that He can declare that we are righteous and that we have the righteousness of God. It's it's an amazing miracle. When God looks upon the sinner whose trust is in Jesus, he sees amazingly God's righteousness rather than our wickedness. And this is wonderful news, but Paul still has more to say. He's told us what God has done, but now he wants us to know how God has done it. Do you feel the question in your soul, how is it? That, a, that an infinitely holy and just and righteous God, a, a God who requires death for sin and whose wrath and hatred against sin and sinners is revealed throughout the Old Testament, Romans 1:18. How can this God declare wretched sinners righteous and even beloved and precious to him? Well, first, Paul tells us it's possible because God is a God of grace. Verse 24, justification comes by God's grace. Grace is a gift. It's not something you could ever earn or deserve. It means we can never earn or deserve or demand the blessing of being on good terms with God. Justification must be received by grace. And then verse 24, as a gift. Lloyd-Jones is again helpful. He says this about God's grace. It's not merely a free gift, but it's a free gift to those who deserve the exact opposite. It's not like you show up around the Christmas tree and, well, everybody's getting a gift and everybody's in the family and everybody's been kind of good, so everybody's got a package to open. No, you're the person that showed up. You don't belong in the family. You don't even know the family. And then God's like, here's an amazing gift that has nothing to do with you. And everything to do with the God of glory who would declare a wretched sinner righteous because he is gracious. And this is good news, is it not? (laughs) That God's a giver. God offers his grace freely and lavishly. But I think the church has often made a mistake in thinking that the freedom Or the freeness with which God offers His grace somehow cheapens His grace. Well, everybody's being offered a gift. There's a gift that's available, therefore it must not be that important. Like you're walking into a store with a promotion. Everybody gets a... Well, it used to be, I was going to say a free dozen eggs, but that'd be a big deal now, so... Kroger used to send out coupons for a free dozen eggs, believe it or not. They don't do that anymore. They call it a loss leader, right? You come in, you get this free gallon of milk, and then you're going to buy the store out, and Kroger's happy. and They freely offer you that gallon of milk, so you'll come in and shop. And I, I think what happens, because God so lavishly offers us Jesus, that we start to think about Jesus like that. He's just a throwaway item at Kroger. Church, God, may God forgive us for that. His grace is offered freely, but it is most certainly not cheap. God always acts in ways that are consistent with his character, which means that he can't simply ignore sin and its righteous penalty of death and declare that sinners are righteous in his eyes as though the sin never happened. A holy God has to do something about sin. If he doesn't do something about sin, then God ceases to be holy. Lloyd-Jones says this, because of God's eternal justice and righteousness, something else had to happen before our forgiveness was possible. So it's more than that God is gracious. Somehow his grace... The cost of the gift had to be secured. And at the end of verse 24, we learn that God's gift of justification, that we could stand before a holy God as though we have the righteousness of God, is possible. How? Do you see it in verse 24? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption means payment. It means payment of a ransom to secure another's release. Jesus came to buy you back from the slave market of sin. Sin dominated you. It owned you like a slave. And in Romans 6, 23, Paul says the wages of sin is death. Human death is the price for human sin. So God the Son came down and wrapped himself in our humanity to pay the price we owed and release us from death because he swallowed it whole with his life on the third day. God's Son, God, left the glory of heaven to be born and live a perfect life of obedience to the Father in our place and to die in our place so that He could give Himself for us wretched sinners on the cross. I want to be sure we get this. God demands a payment for sin, and the payment is death. And by sending His Son, Jesus, to take His place to take our place on the cross, God made the payment that God requires. You owe this, and God came down and said, I'll go ahead and pay it. He made the payment that His righteousness required. Jesus died the death that we deserve, so we don't have to. His death is our redemption. He buys us out of death to clear the way, to deliver us into His resurrection life. Jesus is... In Jesus, sin's price of death is paid. You say, that's good news. It is good news. But, but Paul's still not done. And therefore, I'm not. Sorry. But look at verse 25. We are almost finished. Look at verse 25. It's not just that Jesus redeemed us from death by paying the price of death. In verse 25, we see that there's more in verse 25 we learn how a holy god who has a settled opposition towards sin and sinners can graciously declare that we are righteous we, we can't get the good and good friday unless we reckon with verse 25 Unless we reckon with the reality that God has a holy, settled anger and wrath and opposition towards sin and sinners. You say, well, where's that in the Bible? How about John three thirty six? 36? And Jesus says this, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. And in verse 25, we find an incredible word. It's the word propitiation. The word propitiation combines two ideas the satisfaction of God's holy anger towards sin and sinners and the extension of God's mercy toward them instead. Sin leads to everlasting death because an infinite God has infinite wrath against every action and thought and attitude and deed and word and disposition and inclination that do- does not align with His character. And yet, praise God, Jesus is our propitiation. What does that mean? It means He satisfies the wrath of God means he absorbs all of God's righteous anger against sinners who trust in him. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus, God in the flesh, come and swallow up all the wrath that God has against sin and and allow that God would make him sin so that God could pour out his holy anger against sin on his son and he would drink every ounce of it dry so that when we trust in God, when we trust in Christ, there's no more wrath to be expended upon us. We could have life in God and life in Christ. Jesus absorbs all of that righteous anger so that instead God can be merciful for us. What is merciful toward us? What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Do you get it? On the cross, Jesus took upon himself far, something far worse than beatings something far worse than the spikes and the thorns and the taunts and the labored breathing. What Jesus took on the cross was the wrath of God against our every wrong. In other words, God punished His Son so He wouldn't have to punish us. Spurgeon put it this way, We can stand before God as if we are Christ because Christ stood before God as if He were us. And because Jesus is the infinite God in the flesh, He was able to absorb in that moment all the wrath we deserve to face forever and to put an end to it once and for all. Believers, that is the good in Good Friday. Beloved, Good Friday is good because our sin is as bad as the cross implies. Good Friday is good because on the cross, Jesus paid the price of death for our sin. Good Friday is good because Jesus drank down every ounce of God's wrath towards sinners who will run to Him for salvation. I'm here to tell you tonight, there's one place in all the world where God's wrath has already been extinguished. It's been burned out, never to burn again, and it is in His Son on the cross. And this is why Jesus declared from the cross, it is finished. Chuck Swindoll said this. On the cross, Jesus tilted his head back. He pulled up one last time to draw one last breath, and he cried out, Tetelestai. It was a Greek expression that almost everyone present would have understood. It, it was an accounting term. Archaeologists have, have found tax receipts with the word Tetelestai written across them, meaning paid in full. With his last breath on the cross, Jesus declared the debt of sin is canceled and the wrath of God is completely satisfied. Nothing else required, not good deeds, nothing. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. As our deacons make preparations for the Lord's Supper, I want to pray for the uh, Time that we will enjoy as we celebrate the incredible goodness of Good Friday. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we are about to do as your Son commanded. We're about to receive the, the crushed fruit of the vine, and we're about to receive the, the bread, and we're about to be reminded of the high cost that you paid. Jesus, a million lifetimes would never be enough to repay you. And you don't even ask us that, God. You just say, trust me. Believe in me. Follow me. Live for me. And so, God, this evening, we ask that you would cement in our minds and in our hearts the amazing goodness of your salvation and the incredible reality that you overcome our sin by what you've accomplished through Christ and Christ alone. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at Northroneup.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.